The Bowery Boys episode 317, Vaccinated, New York, and the American Polio Epidemic. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And I'm Tom Myers. Now, over the past couple of weeks, we have been diving into some truly escapist subjects, Greg. Total escapism. <laughs> yes. Um, which is, you know, I think it's healthy. I think it's something that probably everybody needs right now. I mean, we've talked about, uh, let's see, there have been riots uh, that were sparked by fashion choices or straw hats. <laughs> uh-huh. um, we ha- recently had a diva performing at uh, Castle Garden. And we've had holdouts mm-hmm. and Hall of Fames. Mm-hmm. Halls of Fame, I think. Halls is, of Fame. Yes. Is the, <laughs> is the plural. But on occasion, I think as we do these more frequent shows, we might take a pause from the escapism a little bit and look at a subject that reflects our current situation, our current crisis. Yeah, because here we are, uh, the first week of April 2020. Recording this as so many of us, well, pretty much everybody, is sheltering at home, let's face it, fearing this dangerous, invisible virus. And there are many concerns for all of us about our livelihoods and just about keeping safe right now. So history, it turns out, can actually provide some relief in addition to just being a diversion or escapism we can actually look at how people have faced similar issues in the past. So this is actually going to be one of those types of shows. But it's a subject that I think will make many of you feel relief, maybe, Mm -hmm. in a strange way. Because the subject of today's show is vaccines. That's right. Vaccines. We're getting increasingly some hopeful news surrounding vaccines. There have been several advances, you know, in potential vaccines that are being developed for COVID-19, the coronavirus. So a little bit later in the show, the second half of the show, we'll be representing something that I recorded a couple years ago. This is an episode of my old spinoff show called The First, Stories of Inventions and Their Consequences. Now, this first episode is about the creation of the very first vaccine created by an English scientist named Edward Jenner. So this is the type of information that I hope many of you will find some comfort in, understanding the relationship between diseases and vaccines. Plus, the story is really, believe it or not, about a cow, <laughs> a cow named, it's about a cow named Blossom. And I, and I think we could all use a little Blossom in our lives right at this particular <laughs> and, time. And appropriately, because it's, let's face it, it's during the spring. So even mm-hmm. if you're social distancing and walking around, we're all taking in some blossoms right now, Greg. <laughs> and it's a very good show. It's, it's also a show, uh, it's an episode that is set mostly in England. And as this show, of course, is about New York. So we thought that we would, we would pair that episode of the first with stories about New York and about vaccines. A lot of people are taking this moment right now in our lives to study up on the 1918 Spanish flu epidemic, which swept across the globe right as a world war was waging in Europe. 
But what's even more scary, honestly, is that America and New York City in particular have been in epidemic dangers during many periods of its history. Now, when you when you hear the word vaccine, I imagine that for many of our listeners, your thoughts immediately jump to polio and the creator of the polio vaccine, Jonas Salk. Salk, of course, was one of the world's most famous scientists because of this discovery. But that vaccine was introduced in the early 1950s. And we tend to forget that polio had been afflicting communities for many, many decades before this vaccine was available. The story of the polio vaccine starts, in a way, with the 1916 polio outbreak in New York City. During the summer of 1916, New York City was the epicenter of the polio virus, which causes the disease known as poliomyelitis, or polio. That outbreak was officially announced on June 17, 1916. It was stated at that time that there were 114 cases in Brooklyn, mostly in South Brooklyn, and nearly all of them were afflicting very young children. In fact, 90% of those who had caught polio were under the age of five. And in a grim echo of what we're experiencing right now, the public was regularly updated on the situation, including new cases and new deaths. Nine days after the outbreak was announced, the city's Department of Health announced another 37 cases, bringing the total to 183 in Brooklyn, and a dozen children had died. Just two days later, the department announced another 23 cases, and three days after that, on July 1st, the number of new cases spiked to 53, with 12 new deaths. And it just continued like this, building every day through the month of July, 1916. You can imagine that this was an extremely scary time to live in the city. Well, especially for the families, you know, who had small children. And because this was the middle of the summer, New Yorkers, you know, who could take off, they did take off. They They fled the city for summer homes or for retreats, for anywhere, just to get away from the spread of the disease. This all sounds so eerily familiar, Tom. Oh, and it even gets more familiar, because the city closed down places where people met and where they congregated. There were concerns that polio spread through the water, so children were told to stay away from swimming pools, and they were especially told to stay away from homes of children uh, who had caught polio. The city took action as well. Now, I want to read you this article from the front page of the New York Times on Tuesday, July 4th, 1916. Mm -hmm. Quote, with 72 new cases of infantile paralysis, that's the technical term for polio, reported yesterday and 23 deaths in the 48 hours ending at noon yesterday. Health Commissioner Emerson yesterday drastically extended his efforts to prevent the spread of the disease. At his request, the Commissioner of Licenses notified every motion picture theater in the city not to admit children under 16 years of age from July 5th until such time as the Board of Health declares the danger of an epidemic of infantile paralysis has passed. 
And the article goes on, you know, to list the other measures that the city was taking. Um, in fact, they they had canceled all of the Fourth of July parties and parades that had been scheduled for that very day. But the health department also took even more certainly controversial measures, mm-hmm. posting signs outside of the homes of infected children. Can yeah. you believe this? Yeah. They were making it very public. In fact, they were even publishing the patients' names and addresses in newspapers. This is a scary time. This That sounds insane. Well, the, the health departments, they set up a special task force to tackle this polio outbreak. And the, the task force insisted that those measures would be effective in stopping the spread because it was necessary to keep those who were sick under quarantine and alert the others in, you know, in the area to stay away. In fact, furthermore, the people who were quarantined at home needed to be separated off, you know, in their own bedroom and with their own bathroom. And what did they do if they didn't have the room? What if they, you know, only had one bathroom? Well, then the patients couldn't stay at home. They'd have to stay in a hospital, and the city had set up hospitals specifically to treat polio. So when did this outbreak finally come under control? Well, the the polio outbreak peaked around August 1st, and then the new cases and deaths really dropped dramatically throughout August and it, certainly in September, and really disappeared pretty much in October. But by the end, in the United States that year, about 27,000 people would be afflicted with polio and 6,000 would die. And what were the numbers locally? Well, New York would suffer more than any other part of the country, by far, with about a third of the total cases. More than 9,000 people would be stricken with polio in New York, and 2,343 would die. And the vast majority of these cases were children under the age of five. So... This particular year that you've been speaking about, 1916, would have been a very horrifying year to raise a child in New York, especially if you were working class, especially if you didn't have access to proper health care. This was the case, actually, with a young couple named Daniel and Dora Salk, both children of Jewish Eastern European immigrants who had gotten married and were now living in East Harlem. By the time that they had their son Jonas on October 28, 1914, however, they had moved to Ellesmere Place near Cretona Park in the Bronx. So young Jonas Salk was not even two years old in 1916 when, when so many other children in New York City were coming down with this disease. And then, I mean, honestly, there but for the grace of God, as they say, one of the people who would be most responsible for the eradication of polio might have contracted it here at an early age. But he didn't. No, thank goodness. Fortunately, Jonas Salk had a very happy childhood. He went to high school at Townsend Harris Hall on the campus of City College and eventually graduated and went to college here as well. It was here, actually, that he first began his lifelong fascination with science, receiving a bachelor's degree in chemistry. And so this is City College's beautiful campus up in Hamilton Heights. That's where he went to school and started his career in science. Where did he go next and after graduating from City College? 
Well, he continued his study of medicine at the New York University College of Medicine, where he got his medical degree in 1939. Mm -hmm. Now, although this is a NYU campus, New York University, it's located actually over on First Avenue uh, near the institution that it was long associated with, Bellevue Hospital. Right. NYU Medical. Uh, NYU Langone today. So we're not talking about NYU's Washington Square campus, of course, and we're... Unfortunately, also not talking about NYU's Bronx campus again, home to the Hall of the <laughs> Hall of Fame of Great Americans. Yeah, yes, nowhere near the Hall of Fame. Though, although had it lasted, Jonas Salk most likely would have been elected to it. Oh, right? we could have totally nominated him. Well, it was at NYU College of Medicine that he first began working in the Department of Bacteriology with the influenza virus. Salk would go on to begin a residency program at one of New York's most esteemed teaching hospitals, Mount Sinai. Mm -hmm. While living in a home in the Upper East Side, he lived in Yorkville, actually, with his new wife, Donna. To quote from an excellent biography of Salk by Charlotte de Croze Jacobs, quote, Over the next two years, Jonas rotated through the medicine, pediatrics, neurology, and surgery services, working his way up from wardsman to junior to senior to house physician. So in, in the next few years, the career of Jonas Salk really started taking off. Yes. Now, I'm actually going to leave him here on his journey, uh, leave the story right here for a moment, and rewind back to the year 1920 to introduce a new character. 1920. So after World War One, four years after the polio epidemic that we just discussed, um, mm-hmm. and just a couple years after the 1918 Spanish flu outbreak. Yes, that's where we're at. So in that year... A 14-year-old Polish immigrant from from Bialystok named Abram Saperstein arrived at Ellis Island with his parents. Now, the family would settle in Patterson, New Jersey, where young Abram's father worked in the garment industry. And by the way, Patterson, it might surprise people to know this, but Patterson was a really important and prominent place for the garment industry, particularly Mm -hmm. the silk trade. In fact, the city's nickname is Silk City. So, so Abram Saperstein wound up with his family in Patterson. Yes. He would later change his name to Albert Sabin and would go on an educational path very similar to that of Jonas Salk's, actually. In fact, he would also get his medical degree from NYU in 1931, so a few years before Salk. He was a few years older, after all, and he worked for a couple years at Bellevue Hospital. And by 1933, Sabin would publish his first article on human poliomyelitis. Okay, so so here we have two young Jewish-American scientists, the children of immigrants from Eastern Europe. Um, Sabin is, in fact, an immigrant himself, Mm -hmm. both making their way through New York University and, and soon to become the two most important men in the battle against polio. Mm-hmm. Although they would go on to other institutions in the country and throughout the world, their paths to finding a vaccine for the polio virus began here. Yes. Salk and Sabin would indeed be the most important men in this cause. But I'd like to add a third man here. 
another New Yorker, a very well-connected man of high society who began his political career here in the 1910s, a man named Franklin Delano Roosevelt. FDR. And during the 1910s, so at, at this time, was he already married to Eleanor? Yeah, uh, yeah, they actually got married in 1905, and although we won't really be speaking much ab- about her here, she's always publicly by his side. We won't get into the their personal relationship here on okay. the podcast today, but she'd be with him through some terrible times, okay? So let's go actually to now to August of 1921, and they are at their summer home at Campobello Island, Roosevelt was struck down while he was staying here with a devastating illness. To quote from the front page of the New York Times on September 16th, the headline, F.D. Roosevelt, ill of poliomyelitis. Quote, Roosevelt, former assistant secretary of the Navy and Democratic candidate for vice president in the last election, was brought to this city from yesterday, suffering was brought to the city yesterday suffering from poliomyelitis, or infantile paralysis, which for more than a month has caused the loss of the use of both legs below the knees, unquote. And of course, this illness would permanently paralyze Roosevelt uh, from the waist down. So this was polio. But I had mentioned earlier that the disease seemed to target children the most, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, as we unfortunately know from recent events, that these types of viruses can gravely affect anybody under the right circumstances or in the case of pre-existing conditions. However, though, many today think that, that Roosevelt actually did not have polio, but a similar disorder, Guillain-Barre syndrome. But regardless, he thought he had polio, and thus, as he worked to overcome this deficit, when he re-entered politics and eventually became the governor of New York State and then the president of the United States, he also worked to overcome this. He also made finding a cure for polio one of his major goals in life. And fortunately for him, he was in a powerful position where he had the ability to effectively, as often as he could, disguise his medical condition. But as he got more involved again in politics, although he had the power to do something about finding a polio cure, he might have found himself short on time uh, to do that. When did, he, when did he actually become governor? Yeah, he became governor of New York in 1929. But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, okay. there's, a lot, there's a lot going on in the Jazz Age. So what he would need, in fact, was not a scientist by his side, but a legal genius. Now, early in his life, Roosevelt had been a lawyer. And in fact, after he became stricken with polio, he, he no longer even went to work in his office at 52 Wall Street because the stairs were actually too steep for him to climb because he, he had crutches. But he did have another office at the Equitable Building at 120 Broadway. Oh, the Equitable Building, which is yes. very notable in New York City history. We've talked about it before. Um, it's the building that is across the street from Trinity Church. For those who can't picture it, it's the really very tall building without any setbacks. In fact, we talked about it in the Zoning Law of 1916 show um, because mm-hmm. it was one of the buildings that inspired the city to create the zoning law in the first place. B- 
because it was it was basically blocking any fresh air and light from coming down to the street. So the equitable building has that reputation mm-hmm. that many know, but it would also become the central administrative headquarters in the battle against polio in the United States. And, it, and that's because of a man that Roosevelt met here, a lawyer named Basil O'Connor. Now, Roosevelt and O'Connor would practice law together, and he would then spearhead Roosevelt's efforts to combat polio. That's in the 1920s. And it's important to remember that polio certainly would not go away after that 1916 epidemic breakout, you know, that I was talking about. Um, mm-hmm. it, it would actually just become a very frightening reality for the next few decades that people would just sort of have to live with. You know, it never went away. It continued to kill thousands of people and afflict and, you know, paralyze many, 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 many thousands more. Now, there were a lot of crazy and unconventional therapies that were tried out and invented in the 1920s and 30s to battle polio. There were also a lot of effective but rather scary new treatments, like the invention of the iron lung, which was first used in a Boston hospital in 1928. An iron lung, just to clarify, it's essentially like a body-length container that helps with breathing kind of like a ventilator. In many respects, yes, it is. And this iron lung would save many lives, but they would just be so frightening to look at. There were still so many deadly infectious diseases during this period, but polio was uniquely frightening to Americans during this period. And part of that is due actually to a very successful education campaign that was founded in 1938 by Roosevelt and by Basil O'Connor, the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis. In, you said 1938? So by, by that time, Roosevelt was now president of the United States. In his second term, actually. He had been guiding the nation through the Great Depression. What did the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis do exactly? I'm not familiar with the name. Oh, oh, Tom, you are definitely familiar with this organization. And you are familiar because of a surprising figure in this story, vaudevillian and radio star Eddie Cantor. How did Eddie Cantor become involved in this? Here we are in the 1930s, right? Mm Mid-1930s. He was a huge star, thanks to radio and Broadway, later some TV. One of the most famous men of the Depression era, and he was actually very politically active. We might call him woke for his day, (laughs) actually. For instance, he was actually very vocal about anti-Semitism in America uh, and was very out and proud Jewish entertainer in a time when celebrities didn't really spend a lot of time talking about that stuff in public. But he was also very interested in using his fame for charities and for social justice. Wow. So how did he then get involved in the polio cause? So Cantor was already fundraising on a national level for various polio charities. And so in 1938, Cantor suggested something that might be a play off of something that every American knew. And so if you went to the matinees back then in the late 1930s to see a movie, you might have sat through movie trailers, but you also might have sat through something else. Are you referring to the newsreels 
that would that would appear before the feature film. The in fact, the most famous of these newsreels was called "The March of Time," which is a kind of dramatic title I've always been into. You know, with the dramatic voice, <laughs> but it was it was ostensibly like you know your your weekly short burst of news. So Cantor, because he's a funny guy, mm-hmm. thought. Well, as a fundraising effort, as a sort of a knockoff name, instead of March of Times, why not call the fundraising organization the March of Dimes? Hold on. Are you telling me that the March of Dimes is actually a pun? (laughs) It is possibly the most influential pun of all time. And because people would send in their dimes... In this fight, this March of Dimes, this race for a cure for polio. And this became one of the biggest fundraising drives in American history, using radio and even the new invention of television by the late 1940s to get this message out. And then here in New York, there were all sorts of fundraisers. You had an annual March of Dimes fashion show held at the Waldorf Astoria and other types of huge benefits. But for the most part, though, most of the money was raised door to door. And I imagine that even after World War II, uh, the fundraising effort really ramped up even more. Yeah, to quote from a Pulitzer Prize-winning book, uh, David Oshinsky's Polio and American Story, quote, Between 1951 and 1955, the National Foundation would raise $250 million, more than twice the amount in the previous five years. And much of that money went to patient care and rehabilitation, um, and some of it went to a public awareness campaign. And then a great bulk of it also went to research and the creation of a vaccine. So let's bring back in, ladies and gentlemen, two heroes back into the story here, Mm -hmm. Jonas Salk and Albert Sabin. So we left them earlier in the story just launching into their medical careers. So now jumping forward into the 1950s, they are now top researchers devoting themselves to finding a cure for polio. So... Were they actually working together? Actually, they did not. They were pretty much rivals. And they even represented two different kinds of vaccine solutions. I think it's even fair to compare them to Thomas Edison and George Westinghouse, at least in terms of how those two men, for instance, championed different ideas about electricity. And in the case of Salk and Sabin, they had different ideas about vaccines. Yeah, now, as we'll hear in the second part of the show a little bit later, vaccines are created from weakened aspects of a virus, or sometimes inactivated or killed particles of a virus. Jonas Salk, who was now at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine, preferred the method using a killed virus with killed particles, right? Sabin, on the other hand, he he was over at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine, but he was working with a live virus. And why would anyone prefer a live virus version? That sounds kind of scary. It, it does, but actually as attenuated vaccines, as they're called, with live viruses, are actually pretty common. The chickenpox vaccine today is from a live pathogen. Sabin believed that the killed version of the vaccine, the one that was being developed by Salk, he believed that it was 
going to be weaker, that it would not have been as effective. Mm. However, Sabin's vaccine, because it was, had some more potential to be more dangerous, it just needed more time for testing. Salk could actually produce his vaccine more quickly. And at the time, America really couldn't afford to wait around any longer for a vaccine. No, not here by the early 1950s. In fact, there was a new dangerous polio epidemic that was sweeping the country. In 1952 alone, nearly 60,000 children were infected, many thousands of them paralyzed, and over 3,000 deaths. The New York Times ran weekly tallies of infection reports, just as they had done in 1916 and just as they do now. Meanwhile, millions of Americans had donated time and money to the March of Dimes and were anxious to see some kind of a result. So there's a lot of pressure. There's mounting infection toll in the country. And so I can imagine it was a really hard time. So did Salk get his vaccine out first? Yeah, he did. In 1952, actually, Salk began testing his vaccine. News spread of the tests. And by February 26, 1953, the following year, Basil O'Connor hosted a huge gathering of medical professionals at the Waldorf Astoria. Jonas Salk himself began to make radio and television appearances. So just a month after this Waldorf Astoria conference, he appeared on a CBS special called The Scientist Speaks for Himself. Wow, what an impact this must have had. I mean, Jonas Salk had become a star. He, he had become the embodiment of everyone's hopes regarding the vaccines, hopes that mostly played out starting in 1954 with a field trial unprecedented in American history, using 2 million U.S. children between the ages of 6 and 9, given either a dosage of the vaccine or a placebo. The following year, it was announced that the vaccine had proven to be safe and 90% effective in the protection against polio. And at last, we had a vaccine. Not quite, unfortunately. Oh. The formula for the vaccine, you know, so we were talked about rushing things earlier, right? People were impatient. Uh -huh. The formula of the vaccine had been rushed to laboratories. And one laboratory in California, uh, Cutter Laboratories, accidentally made a version of the vaccine with a live polio virus. It infected thousands of children. It caused 56 deaths, but then sparked all these new epidemics across the country. So Salk's vaccine worked for the most part, but because they were rushing it to market, there were serious mistakes made. Yeah. Meanwhile, Sabin's live vaccine, which was an oral vaccine... So this took a little bit longer, but it was finally sent to trial in the Soviet Union, believe it or not, in 1959. And in 1960, it was officially endorsed by the U.S. Surgeon General and became the standard polio vaccine in the United States. So Jonas Salk's vaccine was eventually phased out, although there are even debates to this day about which vaccine is the most effective and safe. And this is such an epic story. It's almost, it almost feels like a war story, except that it, I guess it's played out in laboratories. But I feel like it's still kind of hard to wrap one's head around 
the very basics of what a vaccine even is. How did somebody even come up with the idea of a vaccine in the first place? Well, Tom, to answer that question, I'll present the story of the first vaccine. Oh, and the story of Blossom the Cow. (laughs) Yes, we'll present that story after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And now presenting an episode of The First, Stories of Inventions and Their Consequences, the episode name, The Cow and the Country Boy. Once upon a time, there was a little boy named James Phipps. He lived near the Little Avon River within a small medieval parish named Barclay in that faraway land of the United Kingdom. James lived just down the hill from one of England's oldest castles, dating to the 11th century. They say the castle was haunted. The boy would sometimes venture from his house to visit a farm and wave at the local milkmaid. Her name was Sarah Nilms, a lovely girl with unblemished skin. She could often be found here sitting on a stool in front of a cow. The cow's name was Blossom, 
It is here, with the boy, and with the milkmaid, and with Blossom the cow, that a powerful weapon would be developed, one which would save millions of lives in a battle to defeat one of the most destructive forces on the planet. This is the story of an old wives' tale that saved the world. This is the story of the first vaccine. The creation of the vaccine is the equivalent of a brilliant chess move, a successful strategy by those on the defense to ward off the aggressions of a powerful foe. We get a litany of vaccines when we're small, a universally unpleasant experience. Nobody disputes this. When I was one and a half years old, I got horribly sick after a round of standard vaccinations. There's no explaining to a baby that you're saving his life. In a way, the discovery of the vaccine reveals that a disease's worst enemy is itself. There are many different types of vaccines today, but they work using two basic rules. The first rule is that a virus will either naturally generate a weaker strain of itself or that a weaker inactive strain of the virus is able to be successfully isolated in a laboratory. When that lesser version of the virus, either naturally obtained or artificially isolated, is then introduced into the human body, then the second rule abides. The human immune system organizes, rises, and defeats this intruder, as though the intruder in this case were the more powerful version. It's like fighting a marauding army, but that army forgot its armor and weapons. Still, your body then stays in constant paranoid alert for that virus for your entire life, or at least a great portion of it. Your body becomes immune. Today, most Americans are vaccinated for diseases like measles, mumps, rubella, meningitis, influenza, polio, and more. The list actually reads like a history of the world's deadliest enemies, many of them associated with devastating epidemics that have killed or maimed thousands of people. One disease we are not vaccinated for anymore is smallpox. The diseases that we are vaccinated for today are still present in some parts of the world, although in some cases very, very rare. Smallpox, however, is entirely extinct. Well, Virtually, there are small traces that are kept in biological research facilities in Atlanta, Georgia, and Kultsevo, Russia. In the history of mankind, no virus is as deadly as smallpox. It's deadlier than cholera, syphilis, typhus, malaria, deadlier than even the Black Plague. Inflicted with smallpox, the body is overtaken with high fever and a gruesome red rash of spots which advances into grotesque pustules which then crust and eventually scab. Those who are lucky enough to survive its grip wear those scars on their body forever. More virulent strains of smallpox could cause certain death. It seemed almost impossible to escape from in the years before the Industrial Revolution as the virus was spread through the air via the fluids of infected people. 
British historian Thomas Babington Macaulay wrote in 1848, The smallpox was always present, filling the churchyard with corpses, tormenting with constant fears all whom it had not yet stricken. And perhaps the most grotesque part, it largely targeted children and infants, because once you had it, your body developed immunity. An 18th century scientist declared, No man dared to count his children as his own until they had had the disease. And so this explains the rather macabre way in which people inoculated themselves and their children from the disease in the 18th century. They simply identified the best time to be sick and purposefully exposed themselves to the disease. This was called variolation, a technique from Asia that swept through Africa and the Ottoman Empire before becoming fashionable in the Western world. If somebody appeared to have a survivable strain of smallpox, oh, sure, I was just horribly scarred, but I lived, their scabs were removed and deliberately placed under the unaffected individual's skin with a knife and a needle. That newly infected individual had undergone weeks of vigorous preparation for this particular infection through weird diets, bloodletting sessions, and purging. Pretty scary stuff, and naturally, the popularization of variolation was a very slow process. In England, its chief proponent was Lady Mary Mortley Montague, wife to the ambassador of the Ottoman Empire. She publicly had her children variolated, a success that inspired the British royals to promote the procedure throughout their empire. In America, the Boston religious leader Cotton Mather was an early proponent. Rather shockingly, as the biological nature of disease spread was little known, and many attributed its spread to the rise of sin. But by the Revolutionary War, variolation became so accepted that General George Washington had even commanded his own army be subjected to it. But, and you'll find no surprise here, there were a great many drawbacks to exposing oneself to the smallpox disease through this method. Let me put it this way. You're putting another person with smallpox onto the earth. It could easily kill them, even with all of those strange precautions. And more dangerously, others could get smallpox from that individual, others who did not choose to get smallpox. In potentially curing yourself, you might accidentally wipe out your whole family. And that's exactly what happened in many, many cases. Perhaps the most famous person to die from variolation was the four-year-old son of King George III in the year 1783, the same year the English king lost the American War of Independence to another George and his highly immunized army. Variolation merely abated the threat of smallpox. It did not end it. The beginning of the end for this catastrophic illness would be found not within the great cities of Europe, not among the royals, but among the rural folk, in a mystical little Paris in Gloucestershire, atop the Barclay Vale, about three hours west of London. Before 1786, Barclay was known for two things. Its medieval castle, where Edward II, the former king of England, was murdered in the year 1327. The second thing Barclay is known for is the scary legend of the Witch of Barclay who was carried off to hell on a black horse covered in spikes, and who is believed to haunt the surrounding woods. 
But unfortunately for Edward II and for the witch of Barclay, the legacy of this charming town would be changed in 1796 by a local man, a simple and somewhat perhaps eccentric country doctor by the name of Edward Jenner, Fellowship of the Royal Society, Physician and Scientist. Jenner was born in Barclay in 1749, fifth son to a town reverend, their home in the shadow of the royals who lived in the castle at the top of the vale. His parents died when he was quite young, but his many brothers and sisters helped raise him up as a child fascinated by the natural world surrounding him. While he was still quite young, Edward Jenner was himself subjected to the variolation process. Preparing to receive smallpox was one of the most traumatizing events of his life. In his own words, There was taking of blood until the blood was thin, purging until the body was wasted into a skeleton, and starving on a vegetable diet to keep it so. Edward never attended one of England's August medical schools, but he did apprentice with noted surgeons and doctors in the region, and as a young man soon set up a small practice in his small town. We have such specialization in medicine today that it's hard to imagine how truly general a general practitioner such as Edward Jenner might have been. He blended his medical education with the use of local remedies and customs. Medicine then was still on the threshold of so many great discoveries, and Jenner, outside the urban centers and with his deep fascination for nature, was well positioned to make unconventional observations. In fact, he was first noticed in more rarefied elite circles, not for his medical work, but for his observations of birds. At 39 years old, his uniquely observant work on the life of the cuckoo bird was so profound that it eventually got him elected to the Royal Society, the United Kingdom's oldest science organization. But again and again, he kept coming back to the threat of major epidemics, to smallpox, and to the variolation process that he had endured as a child. It worked, variolation, he was evidence of that, but it was at great risk and suffering. What if one could become immune to the virus in a less deadly way? In his first years of practice, he had been told of a rural legend of a type we might call an old wives' tale. In Mr. Jenner's words, In this dairy country a great number of cows are kept, and the office of milking is performed indiscriminately by men and maidservants. It commonly happens that a disease is communicated to the cows, and from the cows to the dairy maids, which spreads through the farm until most of the cattle and domestics feel its unpleasant consequences. This disease has obtained the name of the cowpox. Now here's where it gets rather interesting. So essentially, farm workers, in specific the dairymaids, would be subject to a unique sort of sickness common in the diseased cows they touched. They would get these nasty little red lesions on their arms and hands, eventually becoming unsightly black sores. But eventually, the person would heal with just minor scarring. Over time and through tradition, local farmers would notice a very fortunate coincidence, one that would be passed down through rural communities quietly for decades. It is a fact so well known among our dairy farmers that those who have had the smallpox either escape the cowpox or are disposed to have it slightly, that as soon as the complaint 
shows itself among the cattle, assistance are procured, if possible, who are thus rendered less susceptible of it. Otherwise, the business of the farm could scarcely go forward. Before Jenner, there had been others who had observed this correlation between cowpox and smallpox. And by the way, for the record, there's also a monkeypox and a horsepox, and today the animal most at risk at getting cowpox is actually cats. Anyway, this unique phenomenon that Jenner had observed remained rather localized, not quite making its way to serious study, to the regal board meetings of the Royal Society. In the present age of scientific investigation, it is remarkable that a disease of so peculiar a nature as the cowpox, which has appeared in this and some of the neighboring counties for such a series of years, should so long have escaped particular attention. So the relatively benign cowpox had the same effect in the prevention of smallpox as actually exposing yourself to smallpox in the first place. Well then, why wouldn't you choose that? What needed to be figured out was this. Could a person with cowpox infect another person with cowpox? And then would that second person gain the immunity to smallpox? It was this mystery that Edward Jenner began looking into. I now formally introduce you to Blossom the Cow. The parish of Barclay sits in the county of Gloucestershire in West England. This area of the world is known for a particular breed of cow, Gloucester cattle. Today they're quite rare, their milk valued for the production of cheese. But back in the year 1796, they were about as commonplace a sight in Barclay as you could get, as ubiquitous as church towers and castle turrets upon the horizon. Blossom the cow had a red-brown hide with a white stripe. We know this because today, thanks to her role in this particular story, her hidden horns hang with pride in the University of London Library at St. George Hospital. But in 1796, Blossom was in a bit of a scrape. She had been infected with the cowpox virus. It was actually spread by milkmaids who had picked it up by touching other cows. One fine day, a young milkmaid named Sarah Nilms, milking Blossom in her daily routines, promptly became afflicted with cowpox. Now, for a young woman, contracting cowpox was the best thing ever. It meant that you were now immune to smallpox, which often permanently scarred the appearance of those it afflicted. As a result, milkmaids were often considered fair and beautiful women because they never got smallpox. Sarah was possibly the daughter of the farm owner in which she worked. We do know that Jenner knew Sarah Nilms, and when she came to him with her delicate hand marred with cowpox pustule, Jenner had his chance to try out a unique experiment. All he needed was an unblemished soul, someone who had contracted neither smallpox nor cowpox. Little eight-year-old James Phipps was the son of one of Jenner's neighbors. A bright and chubby boy, he fit the bill completely. Your first reaction, perhaps, I'm sure, is one of mild horror. Is a doctor really just about to subject a child to two illnesses, one of them potentially deadly? Isn't that unethical? 
Keep in mind, though, that hundreds of children were already being put in potential harm's way in the variolation process. James, in fact, would most likely have received it himself had it not been for Dr. Jenner. In stylized paintings and drawings of this pivotal event, May 14th, 1796, we see little James standing in front of Dr. Jenner, who's sitting in a cushioned chair in the parlor or sometimes depicted outside. In his hands is a small knife. James, who is being held by his mother, is noticeably disturbed by what's about to happen. How do you explain to an eight-year-old that this horrible thing that's about to happen to them is actually, or eventually, quite healthy? Jenner took the fluid from the sore on Sarah's hand and then, with a quill and lancet, made a tiny cut into the boy's upper arm and inserted the infected material. And then they waited. James remained healthy for a full week. On the seventh day, he complained of uneasiness in the axilla, and on the ninth, he became a little chilly, lost his appetite, and had a slight headache. During the whole of this day, he was perceptibly indisposed and spent the night with some degree of restlessness. But on the day following, he was perfectly well. In that quote, the axilla, by the way, is also known as the armpit. On July the 1st, six weeks after James was given the cowpox virus, he once again saw the specter of Dr. Jenner in his doorway. Oh no, not again. This time, he was injected with smallpox, in the same manner that other children were at the very moment being variolated throughout the world. But now listen to the most delightful part of the story. Jenner waited two and a half weeks before sending the following letter off to his friend, fellow doctor Edward Gardner. The boy has since been inoculated for the smallpox, which, as I ventured to predict, produced no effect. I shall now pursue my experiments with redoubled ardor. Believe me yours, very sincerely, Edward Jenner. Little Jimmy Phipps was used to the routine here by Christmas time when he was yet again given a small portion of smallpox to be doubly sure of its effects he became the first documented child in human history to be successfully vaccinated. That word, by the way, vaccine, actually holds the kernel of the story within its name. For vaca is the Latin word for cow. Jenner continued his experiments with other patients, and his work was the basis of a 1798 publication called An Inquiry into the Causes and Effects of the Verulae Vaccinae, a disease discovered in some of the western counties of England and known by the name of the cowpox. He fleshed out some of these observations and publications over the next few years. As with any new science involving disease, Jenner's discovery was greeted at first with skepticism. Then, as others began confirming these theories, vaccination became the standard in which people protected their communities. It soon became the law of the land, and variolation was eventually outlawed by the 1840s. A decade later, in 1853, you were actually fined for not vaccinating yourself and your children. More importantly, vaccination spread across the world— opening flanks against the disease on several fronts. In 1801, an American physician, Dr. Benjamin Waterhouse, provided some of Jenner's vaccine to the President of the United States, Thomas Jefferson, who proceeded to first vaccinate the enslaved people on his farm at Monticello, then his extended family and household. 
Vaccination took hold in America when Jefferson's successes were passed on to other American cities. In 1803, a Spanish expedition was specifically sent to South America to vaccinate thousands living in Spanish-held colonies in Colombia, Ecuador, Mexico, and Puerto Rico. It was among the most joyous results of his discovery, according to Jenner. I don't imagine the annals of history furnish an example of philanthropy so noble, so extensive as this. Gradual use of the smallpox vaccine would eventually be responsible for a modern miracle the complete eradication of smallpox by the late 1970s. But the theories behind Jenner's work would inspire other physicians to find vaccines to combat other infectious diseases. Of these, perhaps the one that's most famous and close to home for many is the polio vaccine, developed in the 1950s by New York scientist Jonas Salk. Jenner forever changed the human relationship with disease, offering a template on which humans could now attempt to tackle infectious illness. Generations of physicians would proclaim Edward Jenner one of the greatest scientists of the Western world, responsible for saving the lives and continuing to save the lives of millions of people. Yet Jenner never really traveled any further out than London. Most believe he never even left Great Britain in his lifetime. When his wife died in 1815, he eventually returned to his quiet cottage home in Barclay. He even picked up his love of studying birds again. The last thing he ever wrote was a paper called Some Observations on the Migration of Birds, waxing upon the almost poetic movements of even the most common winged creatures. Is there not something as extraordinary in the pigeon, which can, in a few hours, find out its home, though taken away in a box, and totally excluded from the light, to the distance of 200 miles, as in that bird which quits one shore to seek another, whatever may be the extent of intervening seas. Edward Jenner died after having a stroke on January 26, 1823. Today in Barclay, one can visit his actual cottage, preserved as a museum in his memory. You can visit places where he worked and lived, and then out back behind the house is the so-called Temple of Vaccinia, a thatched roof hut where Jenner would vaccinate poor residents of the town for free. Jenner had one more present to impart upon one of the participants of this revolutionary event. James Phipps, that scrappy little laboratory for Jenner's theories, was married with children on the year he attended Jenner's funeral. As perhaps a thanks for his bravery, Dr. Jenner had given Phipps and his family a lifelong lease on a cottage in Barclay. Today we live in a world where vaccines have been a way of life for over two centuries. And along the way, we've compiled a great number of moral and ethical dilemmas that perhaps Jenner could never have conceived. The English philosopher Jeremy Bentham once said, It is the greatest good to the greatest number of people, which is the measure of right and wrong. Or as Spock in the film Star Trek, The Wrath of Khan later rephrased, The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Many, of course, have questioned that philosophy over the decades. There are religious objections to vaccine. Those who question the need for certain vaccines where the disease has virtually disappeared. And those who believe vaccines are responsible for causing new afflictions themselves. 
And vaccines can never be foolproof because there are those among us who can never be vaccinated or those who have pre-existing conditions which would cause great risk. In addition, past vaccination experiments have raised serious questions about the ethics of the procedure. And the vaccine, poorly administered, can cause more harm than good. The vaccine is a tool in which we find great value, one which will continue to save us and for some to concern us. For in the words of Dr. Jenner himself, the deviation of man from the state in which he was originally placed by nature seems to have proved to him a prolific source of diseases. So, Tom, I want to dedicate this story, actually, to my family. I found out something very interesting this week as I was researching it. I had an uncle, my uncle Richard, who I knew had polio as a kid and would lived with the effects for his entire life. So I, I mentioned this casually to my mom, who then said, oh, yes, I and my two brothers got it during the, at the same time. So my mother actually had polio. She and one of her brothers, it kind of cleared up. And then my uncle Richard was taken more gravely ill with it. So anyway, so this story wow. is for them. And you didn't know that story until just now. No, no, I didn't know until this week. My mother had sort of like, it, she was very young, so she probably didn't didn't want to like go back to those memories, I'm mm-hmm. assuming. So, Well, and I, I think that many of our listeners who grew up in the 1950s and 60s uh, will probably remember also getting taking their first vaccine orally, you know, a drop of it on a sugar cube. There is also one other interesting parallel, Greg, in this story. One of the COVID-19 potential vaccines um, that might be heading into phase one trials is at the University of Pittsburgh Medical School. Yeah. When I read that headline last week, it was a total thrill. So we obviously all wish them the best of luck here in the search for this uh, possible vaccine. Uh, For more information on the show, and if you'd like to see some images from some of the things we've described, head over to our website, BarryBoysHistory.com. A huge thank you to all of our patrons who have joined us on Patreon.com slash BoweryBoys with your small monthly support. It's because of you that Greg and I can make this show not once every two weeks, not even every one week. Right now, it's twice a week, and we can only do it because of your support. Thank you so much. That's patreon.com. We would also like to say a big hearty thanks to some brand new patrons. Hello, and thank you to Nathan R., Wendy D., Nick J., Adina H., Jessica S., Lauren T., Graybill J., Josh J., Joan L., Joyce J., Leah H., Catherine M., Jan G., and Ryan P. Thank you so much for your support. It it means so much to us, and it can keep the lights on for the Bowery Boys podcast. We are utterly grateful. Yes. Uh, Utterly, utterly grateful. Utterly, oh. (laughs) I didn't mean to make a cow joke. That was completely an accident. Well, I was going to say that your, your, your first episode was incredibly moving. Greg. (laughs) We better stop now, Tom, (laughs) before we spill any more milk. 
So thank you for listening. We'll see you on Friday. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. 